Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, uh, I have a question for you. Okay. What's your favorite sea monster from the Bible? How many are there? I mean, you've got to go Leviathan, right? Yeah. Is there another good sea monster? I guess there's the the whale slash great fish that ate Jonah. That's right. Yeah. So depending on how you interpret Leviathan, you you could be talking about two whales. Yeah. Uh, Leviathan, for anyone who's not familiar, shows up in the book of Job. Uh, There's a lot of sort of... uh, uh, poetic uh, discussion of the Leviathan, such as canst thou draw out Leviathan with, an, with a hook or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? I think the Leviathan of the book of Job is pretty clearly a fire-breathing dragon, right? Yeah. But, I don't but, Well, but I could never, I can never really get away from the idea that it is some sort of uh, hideous, gigantic sea monster. Yeah. At least a sea serpent, if not a whale of some sort. But that's just, that's just, uh, that's just how I always look to it. Well, I know a lot of times people try to explain some of uh, like the the Leviathan and the behemoth as being some kind of interpretation on existing animals. Like, oh, maybe it was a whale or maybe it was a saltwater crocodile or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Why not go with a fire-breathing dragon? You got a fire-breathing dragon on your plate and you're trying to say, no, 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 I don't <laughs> want it. Well, I, I also have to say for behemoth, the other massive creature that's referenced in Job, I have pretty much always imagined some sort of Warhammer battle creature from, from the Warhammer tabletop game. Uh-huh. Some sort of big, like, armored, fiery demon monster, yeah. But, of course, the question of why the Leviathan and the Behemoth are invoked in the Book of Job goes sort of to the theology of the book, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they're in the scene where God shows up and God's like, hey, who's the boss? Is it you? No, it's me. Yeah. Because... I can best even these top apex predators on the earth. Yeah, primordial sea monsters or land monsters or what have you, uh, I can take them out. You can't. So I'm kind of running the whole show here. But it invokes the idea that there are some beasts on earth so powerful, so so tip top of the pyramid that it would take a god to best them. That's right. We When we think of some of our top apex predators – uh, this is, we often invoke these ideas, right? Because, well, what do you think of when you think of an apex predator? Well, maybe your mind turns to a tiger, you know, tiger, tiger burning bright. You know, mm-hmm. you can't help but romanticize, uh, the power of this creature. Or perhaps you think of, uh, the great white shark. I always think of the shark. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just so powerful and intimidating. It just, it, it haunts our, our, our dreams. Or perhaps, uh, you know, it summons visions of the mighty T-Rex or perhaps the Spinosaurus if you want some prehistoric flavor or really any of the various prehistoric uh, uh, land mammals that were particularly ferocious looking. So what are the qualities that you associate with an apex predator, the predator at the tip top of the food chain? Well, generally you think it's got to it's got to be bigger than us. Right. I mean, it doesn't actually have to be bigger than us, but it, it helps for us to pass that crown of apex predator over to it. Yeah. Uh, it, it it needs to be a ferocious predator, obviously, and it needs to have no enemies, except for maybe us if we're particularly crafty. And generally, we are crafty enough to eradicate just about anything on this planet. Come on. We're the enemy of everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's always got us. Yeah. Really, the only things that have a leg up uh, in the battle against humans are the smaller creatures, such as, say, the mosquito or yeah. various uh, uh, bacteria. Yeah, we're much more threatened by, say, armies of unstoppable parasites than mm-hmm. we are by that single one powerful creature, that that king or queen of the animal world. Yeah, and part of that has to do with the the fragile nature of the the apex throne. Yeah, uh, because that's the thing about the, about the mighty apex predator. Its rule is tentative. There's there's not only loneliness at the top, but fragility and peril. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, who who knows how many great apex predators have perished uh, throughout uh, the, the evolutionary timeline? So many just massive, toothy, fl- uh, you know, f- uh, flesh terrors have just ultimately perished, and many of them lost to us uh, due to the rarity of their fossils. Yeah, that's exactly the problem, right? How many T. Rex fossils do you expect to find? Well, actually, not that many because mm-hmm. there would, you know, each time you go a step up the food chain, there are going to be fewer individuals and often especially with land-dwelling animals, those fewer individuals are less likely to end up in a place where they're likely to get fossilized. So, yeah, the top apex predators are underrepresented in the fossil record. 
those are just the ones that leave good fossil traces. I mean, one of the greatest apex predators of all time, which we will be talking about in today's episode partially, is the great shark, the megalodon, which because it's, you know, this mostly cartilaginous fish, it doesn't have a solid skeleton like so many other animals do. So you, you rarely even find all that extensive of a trace of it. You have to find its teeth and maybe little fragments of spinal pieces here and there. You don't find whole intact megalodons. That's right. Meanwhile, of course, as we've discussed, the trilobites are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, when we think of giant successful creatures that, that prey with impunity and, uh, and, and have few, if any, enemies in the natural world, we can't help but think of, of the, the giant whales, the great whales, such as uh, the blue whale, the finback whale, the sperm whale, the right whale, and the humpback whale. Man, whales are such amazing creatures. And they are. We are going to be focusing on one particular whale today, but also uh, predatory whales in general. But especially when you get into the larger whales, there's really nothing on Earth like them. Oh, yeah. I mean, for instance, the blue whale is not only the largest creature on Earth today, it is the largest creature known to have ever existed. Ever. Yeah. Like, we're living the peak. You can't go back into prehistoric uh, timelines and find a bigger blue whale uh, because the blue whale is the is the upper limit, it, 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 as, at least as far as we've experienced it thus far uh, as a planet. But that's not the only whale superlative. That's right. Uh, for instance, the sperm whale has the largest brain ever to have existed on Earth. Yeah, and that big brain is even there in the scientific name of the sperm whale, which is Visitor macrocephalus. Macrocephalus meaning big head. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that it's got the biggest brain ever. But another one is that, of course, it's got this giant bloated forehead mm-hmm. full of uh, sperm, the spermaceti organ and the big melon that's used in echolocation, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's focus on that brain. An adult sperm whale's brain is about 8,000 cubic centimeters on average. And if you compare that to the mean human brain, which is about 1,300 or 1,400 cubic centimeters, you'll see the difference. Like, this is a whale, and you know, we we think of ourselves as like, wow, we got the best, biggest brain on mm-hmm. the you know in the world. And of course, brain size is not directly correlated to intelligence, as we would imagine intelligence. But we we think of ourselves as like the brain beast. We are the brain animal, and sperm whales have a brain that is about five times bigger than ours. Now, one thing you might wonder is. Okay, you've got a blue whale that's much bigger than a sperm whale, but it's got a smaller brain than a sperm whale. Why is that? What what would that be due to? Well, I would hypothesize that might have to do with the different ways these animals make a living. So whales belong to the biological order cetacea along with dolphins and porpoises. And from there, whales are divided into two categories. You've got the baleen whales like the blue whale and the humpback. And then you've got the toothed whales like the orca or the killer whale and the sperm whales. So you might chalk up this brain difference to the difference in the general trend of encephalization ratios for active or raptorial predators versus more passive feeders. Blue whales are filter feeders. I guess you could still say they're predators in a way. They prey on microscopic organisms, small, not microscopic, but small organisms like krill and copepods swimming through these clouds of tiny crustaceans in the sea with their mouths open. Yeah, they're buffet feasters, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Well, another way to think of it is that they're grazers, right? Yeah. They're, they're not, uh, I mean, they're not herbivores. They're not eating plants. They are eating animals, but they're grazing on these vast patches of tiny animals that have no defensive capabilities or anything like that. They're just sort of drifting through their food. Yeah, their whole approach is essentially, I'm just going to float around, eat as much as I possibly can, and I'm too big for anything to mess with me. Yeah, and it's kind of beautiful, actually. There are videos of blue whales approaching these patches of, of their food sources, like krill and stuff. So you'll see a large cloud of just differently colored water, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the blue whales accelerate toward it. And right as they get toward there, they just pry their mouths open. It looks like a giant machine opening up to like accept a conveyor belt or something, which in a way it kind of is. Mm -hmm. And you've just got this massive flow in of these tiny organisms to get caught in its baleen plates, the mouth parts that catch the food so they can process it. Yeah. And I don't want to imply that there's not an intelligence and a, a beauty and a strategy to the, the feeding practices of the baleen whales. Yeah. Because you do find examples of, say, humpback whales employing a sort of social strategy sometimes to consume their prey. Right. 
But sperm whales, on the other hand, are more active hunters. So they often dive deep to catch their prey, which is mostly giant squid, but they also hunt fish and octopus and larger crustaceans and sometimes even sharks. Mm -hmm. So all around the world, I, I mentioned this encephalization quotient, all around the world, it's a pretty common rule that predatory hunters tend to have larger brains than the prey they hunt. And this implies a great need for processing power, not necessarily what we would think of as intelligence and the, the the kind of abstract human intelligence that we associate with, I don't know, math problems or spatial problem solving or IQ tests or anything. I think biologists tend to think that sperm whales likely need these big brains for perception, which is a kind of intelligence on its own, right? Generally on land, a predator needs to have sharp senses to help it like track and spy on prey, you mm -hmm. know, to sense prey from far away, to stay on top of it, to be very aware of its surroundings. And on land, this is very often sight and smell. But sperm whales, on the other hand, hunt mostly in this dark world of sound, hunting and mapping its surroundings by echolocation, where it uses these organs in its head to slap tissues together and create these clicks that are then reflected out into the water and it listens for the echoes of these clicks reflecting back to it off of anything that has a different density than the water itself. So you have to, if you're trying to imagine the inner life of a sperm whale, imagine yourself as a creature with a huge, powerful brain so highly tuned for sound that their internal picture of the world around them in a totally dark place is as rich and fine-grained based on sound as our picture of the world is based on light. It's kind of impossible to put yourself in that headspace, but. Yeah. And, and then, I mean, it also almost impossible for us as humans to imagine that this creature, uh, it's, it's ancient ancestor was some sort of a, a like essentially like a land wolf. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the craziest things is that you've always got to remember with whales, these creatures were not always in the water. They evolved from land dwelling mammals. Mm -hmm. So you might wonder once you're one of the larger whales, do you really have any enemies to worry about at all? Like if you are a sperm whale, if you're one of these powerful dark world predators that's, you know, got the biggest brain in the entire animal kingdom, one of the biggest bodies in the entire animal kingdom, is there any enemy out there for you? In the wild, not really, probably only orcas, really, the right. orca or the killer whale. But orcas are also fascinating whale predators. I was reading a 2017 article in The Guardian by a marine bi biologist named Lawrence Smith about how orcas will sometimes attack great white sharks to eat their livers. Oh, Have you ever heard about no, this? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's amazing. So apparently shark livers are just like – Jackpot marine nutrition. They're hmm. packed with more than 93% lipids, uh, triacylglycerols. And Smith compares a great white shark liver to, quote, a deep fried Mars bar with added <laughs> vitamins. So wow. it's packed with fat, rich, richly nutritious, but also lots of, uh, hard to come by nutrients in the ocean. So how do you get a great white shark's liver, right? A great white shark, that's a rough customer, right? Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, even it, as delightful as that liver is going to be, you're going to have to get through the great white and all those teeth to, to have a bite of it. But apparently orcas don't have all that hard a time at it because orcas are highly evolved, incredibly adept apex predators, and they can even prey on other apex predators like sharks. Yeah, they are pack hunters. Yeah. And so the, the, the trick, uh, Lauren Smith explains in this fascinating article, is that you give the shark the old flip-flop. <laughs> so she writes, uh, quote, during a 1997 encounter off the Farallon Islands off the coast of San Francisco, a group of whale watchers witnessed an orca ramming into the side of a great white shark, momentarily stunning it and allowing the orca to flip it over and holding it in place, ventral belly up, for around 15 minutes, after which the orca began consuming its prey, much to the surprise of the whale watchers on board. A similar incident was captured on film off Costa Rica in 2014. This time, the orca's prey was a tiger shark. And it's not just sharks. Orcas have been observed doing the same to stingrays, too. So what's going on here? Like, how come an orca can ram a shark, flip it upside down, and then just eat its liver with impunity? 
Well, apparently sharks and rays have a nervous system security backdoor, ah. and it's known as tonic immobility. And this is a state of paralysis that uh, elasmobronx, which are sharks, rays, and skates, fall into when they get positioned upside down in the water. So you flip a shark belly up, ventral side up, and it'll go catatonic and lose muscle control. Basically just goes into a coma until it can get flipped around again. So what's the adaptive value in this? you got to wonder why a shark would have an exploit like this. Nobody knows for sure, but it has been suggested this might somehow be used in mating practices. Oh, okay. Well, that would that would make sense. That would be like the one time where it might be important for a shark, uh, a, a highly aggressive predator, to be m- at least mildly uh, incapacitated yeah. by its uh, its its it, the the mating shark. Yeah, yeah. But all this to illustrate how orcas are these amazing whale predators themselves. So do they pose any threat to sperm whales? Well, pods of orcas will sometimes attempt to separate sperm whale calves from their mothers and eat them. Uh, and I actually did find one account from a paper published in Marine Mammal Science in 2006 about a large herd of orcas attacking a pod of nine sperm whales, including sperm whale adults, and and preying on them. And oh, wow. It, yeah, it's actually kind of a... Uh, a horrifying scene they describe where the sperm whales would circle up in this defensive posture where they kind of make a ring to defend themselves and try to fend off the killer whale attacks. But the orcas were coming at them and the, huh. uh, in the, it says that the orcas employed a wound and withdraw strategy. So they go in and try to injure the sperm whales and then back away because of course a sperm whale is a very dangerous enemy and you know, you, you could be seriously injured trying to prey on one. So, yeah, there was at least this one account I found of killer whales preying on adult sperm whales. But generally, it seems like sperm whales, once they're adults, they're in good health, they're pretty much unassailable in the ocean. They don't really have natural enemies except for the occasional large herd attack of killer whales. And then, of course, this one other enemy, this one. And that would, of course, be humans uh, because we are, we are and have been the main enemy of the great whales, uh, certainly within the confines of human history, certainly in the last couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the apex hunters who hunted them relentlessly and drove several species to the brink of extinction. I mean, you compare us to the orcas, who again are mainly going to be a threat to young whales. Yeah. And there is certainly some, there's some heartbreaking documentary footage out there of orcas, uh, hunting a, a mother and, and her young whale across the seas. Yeah. But humans, but, but in their also, whaling practice, just prey on everything. Yeah. Though a counterpoint to that orca hunting is if you get to witness the protective practices of the adult, like the mother sperm whale, that's pretty amazing too. Yes, but it depends on the documentary. There's some doc, like yeah. if it's a, an Attenborough documentary, I don't necessarily trust uh, that he is not going to break my heart <laughs> with some terrifying predation. Well, there's a lot of heartbreak in the ocean. Yeah, I mean, there's no denying it. But uh, it, basically, I end up approaching it this way because I watch a lot of documentaries with my son, mm-hmm. and it's. It, it's gotten to the point where it's kind of a, a toss up, like how he's going to respond to the predation, because uh, used to like any predation, especially if there's dramatic music, he would get a little upset about. Yeah. But but now at uh, almost six years old, he's is surprisingly chill with some grotesque levels of predation. Like it'll be three leopard cubs feasting on a corpse. And I'll come in and I'll, I'll, I'll walk over and I'll see this. And I'll be like, Ooh, are, you, are you OK with this, buddy? And uh, he says, he says, oh, yeah, they're brothers. They're hungry. That's fine. <laughs> Robert, I think you've just come up with a great children's show, The Hungry Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all about how you frame it, right? Now, uh, one of the, the questions that uh, the, the flip-flop of all this is, do sperm whales ever attack humans? This is something that has been a point of controversy, though there are definitely reports, especially reports from the 19th century of, for example, sperm whales ramming ships. Mm-hmm. Now, it's hard to tell if these accounts are accurate. But uh, sailors from like sunken ships in the 19th century did report sometimes, yes, what happened is a sperm whale rammed our ship until we sank. It like attacked us with the intent to kill us. And, you know, it's hard to imagine if that's even true to begin with. It's hard Mm -hmm. to imagine what's going on in the mind of the sperm whale, though I have also read comments from some marine biologists who think, well, yeah, it's possible that, for example, a sperm whale might ram a ship if it perceived that ship as a threat, which a sperm whale could have good reasons to do, especially in the 19th century with horrible whaling practices. I mean, if you 
read about some of the whaling practices that were in place, then it's worse than any Attenborough documentary. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the most sadistic kind of methods. One I read about was where the whalers would kidnap a calf whale injure it and then keep it there injured, waiting for the parents to come and try to rescue it, at which point they'd harpoon the parents. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, certainly the individuals participating in this at the time, you do have to realize, yeah, they were they were participating in an, in, in an industry. And this was yeah, probably not everyone's first choice. It's true. I mean, I shouldn't judge too much. I mean, in, in some cases, this is also a cultural practice that I, I, I shouldn't pass too much judgment on that but but certainly the it, whaling industry it's hard to think about yeah but, but certainly the whaling industry did become such an industry that it is it is difficult if not impossible to look back on it now and not feel a little sick about it yeah. like uh when i was a kid in uh newfoundland canada for a while i remember we would uh, at least on one occasion we we walked through an abandoned uh, uh whaling port mm. uh and it was it was even then when i only like really kind of partially understood everything it was kind of haunting because you would find these like whale vertebrae and then there would be these big rusted uh, harpoons yeah. like the blunt harpoons and then the uh, as well as some of the, the the pointed ones as well and these were like the later day ones the ones that would have been uh uh, you know, launched off of a, a cannon, I understand, not the, the romantic Moby Dick era harpoons. I feel like there's another way in which whaling sort of violates our hunting intuitions, which is that, I mean, a lot of people would feel terrible about any kind of killing of an animal, but somehow there's an intuition that killing an animal to harvest its meat for food is kind of different than like killing an animal to melt it down and render its fat for industrial purposes, which yeah. is a lot of what was going on yeah, with to, whaling. To lamps, et cetera. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of these stories of like whales ramming ships, we're not completely sure what happened. There's a, there are, there's a lot of legend, uh, that, that rises up surrounding, uh, the activity of whales during the, the height right. of the whaling industry. Uh, and then there are, of course, whole myths of sperm whales in particular, uh, swallowing humans whole. Is that true? Did that really happen? <laughs> uh, so I, I've looked into this in the, in, the, in the past. Stuff to Blow Your Mind actually did an episode on this uh, way back in the day. Uh, and it seems like it probably did not happen. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, a, it's an inviting idea because sperm whales, as we already mentioned, they do feed by suction. Some chewing, but oftentimes they're just sucking down something whole. In fact, in 1955, a whole, a like unchewed, <laughs> 405-pound giant squid was recovered from the belly of a sperm whale. Uh, and, uh, and the sperm whale doesn't even have a tongue, you know, to, to prevent just this absolute in inhalation yeah. of tissue. Now, as, now, the question, of course, is has a sperm whale ever sucked down a human being? Yeah. Uh, which, would, which is also probably an inviting idea because of the, 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 the myth of uh, Jonah and the whale. Oh, yeah. Uh, or, or stories like Pinocchio and the belly of a whale or even modern retellings like the, uh, the Whaler's Revenge song by the Decembrists. Uh -huh. uh, th there's a, actually a wonderful t uh, article that came out in Salon back in 2012 by um, author Ben Shattuck. And he explored the question at the New Bedford Whaling Museum Research Library. So he was going through all these various accounts of uh, of whale-related deaths, uh, frequently caused by uh, whale-on-boat action. And, so like uh, we were talking about, like, ramming a boat and sinking yeah, it. Yeah, or just also thrashing, you know, like oh, the, yeah. the flute could hit the, the boat. I mean, these are massive creatures. And in their struggle to survive, yeah, they could do some serious damage to a boat. Well, that's the thing to remember. If they want to kill us, of course they could. The question is, like, would that be a, something that would occur to them to do? Right. So Shattuck says, quote, I'd like to believe in swallowings, but it's tough. There is there is no air in the stomach for one. There are acids, and if we are talking about sperm whales, which are uh, most of the which we are most of the time, there is the deadly passage through the thirty foot jaws uh, and those eight inch teeth. So uh, it, this is a wonderful article, and I'm not going to attempt to to summarize it all here. Uh, he gets into a number of different angles, and it really gets into the heart of this kind of like vor fetish, this idea that. We kind of like the idea of being consumed whole by another organism because it is like a re return to the womb. How weird. Yeah. So he discusses a few different uh, stories, different accounts of people being dragged and released by whales, uh, mauled by whales. There's one particular story, uh, the case of Edmund Gardner, uh, where there's actually a photograph of this individual years later. And you can still see his mangled hand because he lost some fingers uh, uh, to the, the, the mouth of a sperm whale. Whoa. 
There are ultimately in the New Bedford Whaling Museum thousands of accounts of people being chewed on by whales, but there's not a single one of someone being swallowed. Shattuck, however, not to disappoint, he does discuss he does discuss what it would be like to be eaten by a sperm whale. That is my kind of exploration. Yeah. <laughs> now, we, we did the what it would be like to get eaten by a giant spider. We could do a whole episode on what it would be like to get eaten by a giant whale. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes into it in depth in the article, but basically it would go down like this. You'd be sort of chewed on or at least gnashed on by those eight-inch teeth. You get sucked down the throat into a dark, airless place just water and acid, and then you'd slide into the first stomach or holding bag for 24 hours. Perhaps surrounded, he has this beautiful description of the the possible bioluminescent squid that would be down there with you, lighting it up uh, for a little bit. And uh, But then the acid would break you down, and you'd pass through three smaller S-shaped stomachs, liquidized, and then reduced to whale excrement with uh, some possible bits of bone stuck in there. And that would be your journey pooped out in a cloud of beaks. Yes. <laughs> yeah, because that being the the, the, uh, the the side fact here is that, of course, uh, the beaks of giant squid are not digested either, and they end up just passing through. Rest in beaks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but today we want to look at these magnificent giant predators, the sperm whales and their predatory toothed whale relatives, and specifically to follow their ancestors back through history millions of years back to the time of something that seems to me like maybe the ultimate predator, the best apex predator I've ever read about, the Leviathan. And I think we should tell the story of this creature when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So to be clear, we've known about prehistoric whales in general for uh, quite a while now. And if you've ever spent much time in a, in the, in a paleontology museum or book, then you've seen these creatures often depicted as sort of, sort of skexy faced whales, you know? Now you're not pronouncing sexy in a funny way. You're saying like skexies, yes. like in the dark crystal. Right. The skexies of the dark crystal where they're kind of like long, slender, snouted and very toothy looking. Vulture faced. Yeah. Kind of vulture faced whales. Uh, that, that's how paleo artists tend to depict them. And the prime example here would be Basilosaurus. Oh, I like the name. Yeah. Well, its name is misleading because it means king lizard. What? And it's, but it's not a lizard? It's not a lizard. But <laughs> due to the rules of naming, uh, attempts to name it other things have not worked. So we're stuck with Basilosaurus. Okay. Tell me about Basilosaurus. Okay. So this was a, a genus of prehistoric uh, cetaceans from the late Eocene. That's 40 to 35 million years ago. And according to the Smithsonian, they probably reached lengths of 40 to 65 feet. That's 12 to 20 meters, roughly. Uh, though the 1988 Encyclopedia of Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Animals, that's a book that I grew up with and continue to like uh, check out with my son because it has all these wonderful illustrations. Uh-huh. That book boasted a length of up to 82 feet or 25 meters. Oh, I can tell they're stretching it, right? Yeah. Now, but if you want to talk about stretching it, you go back to 1845. Albert Koch, who was an avid fossil collector, showman, and proprietor of the uh, St. Louis Museum, mm-hmm. he claimed that the creature would have measured 114 feet long or 35 meters. Dang. And uh, yeah, he was a bit of a showman. And, but the, this drew skepticism from the scientific community even at the time. They were uh-huh. like, ah, I don't know. That sounds a bit big. I mean, there's always this inflationary tendency, right? You want to make the thing as big as possible. Yeah, you're trying to sell tickets. Yeah. So this creature would have been an early precursor to the great toothed whales to follow, uh, sharing a similar diet, but without the larger cranium size or the uh, the evolved social behavior. And this brings us to the Leviathan. Right. The Leviathan. I'm so excited about the Leviathan. So uh, I want to tell a fossil discovery story and, and give you the setting. Right? Okay. So it was November 2008, and there were a team of fossil hunters. They were exploring uh, the desert of the Pisco Ica area of Peru. And this is a part of a long strip of desert that runs north-south along the western coast of South America, west of the Andes. So if you picture South America, you've got the west coast, and then there's usually desert regions stretching to the mountains of the Andes, and then you've got, you know, more lush rainforest or other types of uh, eco regions going east of the Andes. And the Pisco Ica region is south of the capital city of Lima in Peru, but north of the Nazca region, which is known for its amazing ancient geoglyphs carved in the earth. If you've never seen the the Nazca geoglyphs, by the way, you should look them up. They're great. 
So there's a 2010 New York Times article about this area in general. And though the Times focuses on one region in this desert known as the Okukahe Desert. So you have to picture this apocalyptically dry dusty expanse, often totally desolate, very windy, stretching to the west-facing side of the Andes. And the winds here kick up dust devils, and they steadily erode these old jagged rocks. To get a sense of it from a local, the Times article quotes uh, uh, someone named Yolanda Gutierrez, who's a worker who travels into this region to harvest seaweed from along the coast in the desert. And Gutierrez says, quote, this desert is horrible. The only things a person sees are dirt and rocks and bones. <laughs> but what if you're looking for bones? Well, then, uh, then I'm guessing you're in for a treat. Yeah. So uh, the French paleontologist Christian de Muison says that the desert along the coast of Peru contains what is probably, quote, the richest spot in the world for fossil marine mammals. And this New York Times article is interesting. It points out that this area is so rich in fossils, especially marine fossils, that local merchants in Ica and other nearby nearby towns sell fossilized shark teeth the size of a man's hand for 60 to to $100. Oh, wow. Now, the size of a, of a man's hand, that's not a great white tooth. That's something else. Yeah, that's, that's getting into like megalodon territory. We're talking the, the, the beasts of old. Right. So according to Peru's Ministry of Culture's Office of Recovery in 2010 alone, there were more than 2,200 seizures of illegally obtained fossils that people were trying to smuggle out of the country or sell on the black market. So this is fossil city. Mm-hmm but especially for marine fossils. So there are many officially recognized fossil discoveries from the area, including the teeth of the megalodon, which is this giant prehistoric shark we've been mentioning that could grow 18 meters or 60 feet long. A 2008 study in the Journal of Zoology by lead author Stephen Rowe created a model that predicted this animal could have had a bite force of more than 180,000 newtons, which is about 40,000 pounds or about 18,000 kilograms of bite pressure. And this has been described as strong enough to crush a car. Yes. Now, to put that in perspective with other uh, species, mm-hmm. the black piranha, 320 uh, newtons of force. Okay. The largest saltwater crocs alive today. 16,414 newtons. Okay. The largest great white sharks uh, alive today, uh, 18,216 newtons. Humans, 1,317. <laughs> but so this is 10 times stronger bite force than a great white shark. Yes. And a great white shark has amazingly strong bite force. So the megalodon was was a beast. It mm-hmm. could bite – I mean it could – Bite your dreams in half. <laughs> it could bite a chunk out of a mountain. This this thing was uh, the beast of beasts. And a kind of creepy fact to remember is that the megalodon existed until it seems like about two and a half million years ago. That feels too close, right? It does, like, yeah. <laughs> like, what if you found out Tyrannosaurus rex had existed until around the same time as our Australopithecine ancestors? Yeah, you would be more inclined to think, well, I might run into one. Yeah, and I, even though, to be clear, there are no megalodon left in the sea, uh, it, it, it does feel a little too close. It makes you a little more inclined to think, well, there maybe there could be, especially if the right sort of sci-fi novel uh, scenario were met. Yeah. So this western desert in Peru is a rich spot for ancient marine fossils because this desert was once a seafloor, which has been pushed up to become dry land by the tectonic activity that created the Andes, the mountains there. So when you walk through this desert, there are these little hills and rocky formations that very often contain fossilized creatures that swam the sea millions of years ago. And so according to Nature News in 2008, a member of this team of researchers I mentioned named Klaas Post, a Dutch researcher who worked at the Natural History Museum in Rotterdam, came across a rocky outcropping with a monstrous toothy figure embedded within it. It was a jaw fragment about as long as an adult human with these unbelievable teeth, teeth like artillery shells. And it was what appeared to be the fossilized skull of a giant whale, though it was positioned inside – as it was inside the rock, the skull was broken and upside down. And once the fossil was excavated and prepared in Lima, the researchers, including Christian de Muison, who I quoted a minute ago, and Olivia Lambert uh, and others published their findings in Nature in 2010 – 
This was no ordinary sperm whale. They figured out that they had discovered a new genus uh, and species of extinct predatory whale related to sperm whales, and they named it Leviathan Melvilli. Ah, so that's wonderful because they're they're drawing on uh, the the biblical tale of uh, of Leviathan, and then mm-hmm. they're also uh, paying homage to uh, to Moby Dick. Right, and so they they cited Moby Dick as the reason for calling it that. Uh, mm-hmm. More even more so than pointing to the Bible, because in Moby Dick, Melville very often refers to the great sperm whale as the Leviathan. Right, and so here we have like the ultimate sperm whale, like the the, the prehistoric sperm whale, a sperm whale so gigantic that it may have eaten whales. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a minute. And it's not – I want to emphasize that it's not necessarily its size because the sperm whales of today are very large. Mm-hmm. It is something more about the mouth and the teeth and the face that we'll get into that explains what exactly this creature was. So their nature paper was published under the title, quote, The Giant Bite of a New Raptorial Sperm Whale from the Miocene Epoch of Peru. And the authors identified this specimen as having lived about 12 to 13 million years ago, which would have put it in the middle Miocene. Its head was three meters long, or about 10 feet. And extrapolating from this, the team concluded that the animal's body length was at least 13.5 meters, or 45 feet, and up to 17.5 meters, or almost 60 feet, putting it in the sperm whale or megalodon size category. And these teeth, unlike modern sperm whales, which just have the fully developed teeth on their lower jaws, Leviathan Melvilli had interlocking teeth on its upper and lower jaws. And if you take one of these teeth and measure it, it is like a two-liter soda bottle almost. <laughs> I mean, it is huge. You'll find it's 36 centimeters long or over 14 inches long and 12 centimeters or almost five inches in diameter. Insanely big teeth. These are, in the words of Christian de Muison, the biggest tetrapod bite ever discovered. Now, I do have to add that nobody yet has has crunched the numbers on exactly uh, how many newtons this particular bite would pack. Yeah. But uh, Lambert in particular estimates that it that it would was probably either on par with Megalodon or perhaps uh, exceeded Megalodon's bite. But it remains an open question. But bigger teeth than the Megalodon, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, these teeth are hilarious if you look at them. And if you try to imagine them in situation as they would have been in the mouth and this mouth is coming at you open, it's the most terrifying thing you can think of. They're almost too big for us to even uh, process as teeth. They're, yeah. they're, they're like giant stalactites and stalagmites, you know? Yeah, they look like sharp-ended dinosaur eggs. Mm-hmm. They're just gigantic. So what was the life and setting of this massive ancient hunter, the Leviathan, the the, the killer whale of killer whales? How did it live? Well, first of all, 12 million years ago, predatory toothed whales were much more numerous than they are today. Today, when you think of predatory toothed whales, you've got things like the orcas, the Mm -hmm. killer whales, and you've got the sperm whales that dive deep into the darkness and mostly prey on squid by this suction action. But something to keep in mind is that not all of the toothed whales today are, as we've been pointing out, biters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Modern sperm whales... They they do this suction thing. They suck the squid in and swallow it. But the Leviathan, based on its jaw and its teeth, has the paleontologists looking at it have said, oh, yeah, this thing was definitely a biter. It was a raptorial predator that would swim up and it would bite something. And by looking at an animal's mouth parts, you can very often tell what kind of stuff it would have been biting, right? Yeah, because as we've said before, nature is a cheapskate. Right. Uh, it's not going to keep teeth around for no reason. If the right. teeth are there, they're serving a purpose. Yeah. If you're eating uh, cucumber sandwiches, you don't need 36-centimeter-long teeth <laughs> right. and, and a bite force on the scale of the megalodon. So because of the shape, size, and wear pattern on the teeth and the skull, the authors of this study believe that Leviathan did not prey on smaller, softer prey like squid, but was hunting large prey with tough skeletons and mm. hard body parts. That prey was very likely other whales, specifically mid-sized baleen whales, like likely between about 7 and 10 meters long, meaning the prey animals of this whale were about 23 to 33 feet. This is the whale killer whale, the wolf of Whale Street. <laughs> I love that. We're going to have to go that with that for the title now of the episode. Uh-huh. All right. So uh, – 
at this point, I, sh- I should I should really drive home. The reign of the uh, Basil Osaurus that we discussed earlier uh-huh. was ancient history by the time Leviathan came to rule the seas. And as, as far as we know it, it pretty much ruled the seas. It was it was pretty much the top predator of the ocean. We don't know of anything else out there to compete with it except maybe the Megalodon. That's right. The only known creature from this time frame that would have rivaled it would have been Megalodon. But it's unknown if these two species ever actually competed against each other or – you know, or certainly uh, had any kind of like a throwdown epic a sea monster battle. You know, I have to say it's, it's it's interesting that some theorize that competition and threats from the likes of Megalodon may have led to the development of pack hunting behavior in toothed whales such as the orca yeah. and to the gigantic size of Leviathan. Uh, and, of course, it's also argued that Leviathan's hunger may have led to an increase in size among the baleen whales, you know, get big enough – to where you're no longer uh, going to be as uh, as easy of a of a prey species for the apex predator, uh-huh. and this may have led to the 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 humpbacks and finbacks and the great blue whales that we know today. I do have to add though that more fossil evidence is needed to fully support uh, this notion, though. That's an interesting concept. I, I hadn't heard that, but. Uh... That kind of makes sense that they would evolve to become larger in order to better defend themselves against these horrible ancient predators. Well, yeah, or it just becomes a – you think about what what sort of animals is the apex predator preying on? Right. You know, what sizes, what what uh, you know, particular uh, you know, strains of the, the genome are falling to it? And then how is that affecting uh, the, 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 the surviving sizes among the species? I mean, as an animal keeps getting bigger and stronger than you, it's harder and harder to prey on it, obviously. Right. And even an apex predator is not going to say, yeah, I feel like a challenge. I'm going to go after this big boy here. No, you're going to go after what what is easiest. You're no, of course they don't want challenges. <laughs> I mean, again, animal nature is a cheapskate and animals are cheapskates. They, right. they don't want to take unnecessary risks. I mean, this goes back to this question you brought up. Everybody always wants to know once they find out about Leviathan Melville, did, Le, did the Leviathan and the Megalodon fight? Mm-hmm. Who would have won in a fight? And I am, of course, not above a little bit of fantasy monster showdown <laughs> thinking myself. But from what I've read, there's probably not a good reason to think that the adults of these species would have fought one another. They might have, like, tried to prey on the young of the other species. Mm-hmm. But once they're adults in good health, these are both very large and very powerful predators. And for either one to start some trouble would have been a risky move, right? Remember, actual fighting is rarer than you probably imagine in the wild. Animals don't like getting hurt. And when they pick on something their own size and strength or or bigger, they are likely to get hurt. And animals are much more likely to go after smaller, weaker prey. That You know, when you see predators attacking a herd of antelope or something like that, they're very often trying to get the young or trying to get a sick, weakened animal, not to get a strong animal in its prime that might kick him in the face. Though I do hear that megalodon liver is mwah, just, just delicious. <laughs> well, I want to come back to that in a minute. So uh, though Olivia Lambert has suggested that these species uh, may have tried to pick off one another's young, I haven't come across any evidence that there's there, there are fossil records of them fighting one another as adults. And it doesn't seem like it would have made a lot of sense for them to do that. Only humans really are stupid enough to 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 go after the impossible dream, you know. To, to sort of, and and we, we and we idolize it too. We we look at someone like say Werner Herzog, and we say, you know, in his his decision, oh, I'm going to I want to film the movie about 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 dragging a boat over a mountain, yeah. and we're going to actually drag a boat over a mountain to do it. <laughs> Megalodon is not going to do that, and neither yeah, that, is Leviathan. That's human folly. Yeah. So here's another curious observation. We talked earlier about the gigantic foreheads of sperm whales. These big heads contain what's known as the spermaceti organ, right, which is a collection of these chambers holding oily, waxy material. And it's not known for sure exactly what this is for, but there are a couple of main hypotheses that have been put forward over the years to explain it. Uh, The first, that it has been used in echolocation. And from what I understand, I think this is the favored hypothesis now. But a second that has been put forward uh, is that the spermaceti organ was an aid in regulating buoyancy to help the whale in in managing its deep dives. 
So Leviathan also appears to have had a spermaceti organ in its head. But if there's any truth to the second hypothesis, you might wonder why a whale like Leviathan would need something like that, right? Because the hypothesis of Leviathan's uh, life is that it didn't need to go down and deep dive for squid, that it was a shallow feeder. It was a shallow hunter mm-hmm. like these other predatory whales. Now, one kind of crazy hypothesis to explain what's going on here has been leveled uh, at this from the University of Utah evolutionary morphologist David Carrier, who we've mentioned on the show before, I think. Was he the fist punch theory guy? Oh, my goodness. I think he was. Yeah. So he said, quote, spermaceti organs could be used as battering rams <laughs> to injure opponents during contests over females. Or I think he also mentions it could have been used to incapacitate and mobilize prey. So Carrier cites the fact that, as we mentioned earlier, people have told these stories from the 19th century that their boats were sunk after being rammed by sperm whales. So it's being imagined for this ancient predator here, the giant toothy whale, the biter uh, Leviathan, is that you've got a one-two punch. The world's largest marine predator speeds out of the darkness smashes into you at full speed, knocks you senseless, and then just bites you in half with teeth the size of two-liter soda bottles. Oh, wow. Just surging up from the depths. I like it. Now, who knows if this is correct, but there's another way, actually, in which this ramming theory does seem kind of plausible to me because the Leviathan is more often cited as a relative of the sperm whale due to its mouth structure and possible hunting patterns. But it might be helpful to imagine what would happen if you basically had a gigantic orca, a killer whale the size of a sperm whale. Remember the story from earlier about how orcas got the shark liver. That's right. They needed to hit them in the belly, right? Right. So the, the orca would ram the shark to stun it and immobilize it, then flip the shark on its back, which would send it into this this catatonic state, the tonic immobility, where it would go into a go into a frozen paralysis and then the orca could dine on its liver at its leisure. And so now I'm imagining this exact thing, but instead of an orca and a great white, it's a leviathan and a megalodon. 12 million years ago. Yeah, because, Juan, there's certainly a sort of a, a, a prey hacking uh, tactic uh, involved with uh, with using it against sharks. Uh, it, it would probably work pretty well against a whale, too. Yeah. A monster like this just ramming into its prey. Now, of course, that this is just a hypothetical scenario mm-hmm. I'm imagining. Once again, there is no direct evidence I'm aware of that the Leviathan ever preyed on adult megalodon. But it, it is fun to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, we can't help but imagine these uh, these 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 ancient battles. Uh, I I just read an entire uh, book to my son where each each page each spread mm-hmm. was one dinosaur against one prehistoric beast, mm-hmm. and you had to compare stats to see which one would win. Oh, uh, and we did spend a lot of a lot of time explaining. Well, these two would never actually battle. <laughs> you know, right? These they, they would have never met, and if they had, uh, why would they have messed with each other? Right. But we still love a good good teardown fight. Well, if it came down to it, the megalodon is no slouch. But one thing you got to remember, the Leviathan's got bigger teeth and a bigger brain. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to show my mammalian bias and and root for the Leviathan no matter what. Like, I just feel more uh, more of a kinship to the Leviathan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got to. That shark's got black eyes like a doll's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going we're gonna to get to another pressing question. Where'd all these monsters go? All right, we're back. So, Robert, I want to come back to this thing we discussed at the beginning about the the apex predator and how it seems in our mind versus how it is in reality. Because Apex predators seem so individually powerful, the tiger, the great white shark, or even the ancient megalodon or the leviathan. It's difficult for us to imagine how a beast this powerful would disappear, would ever have any kind of vulnerability or go extinct. Like what could wipe them out? What could pose a challenge to them? They were top of the pops, right? Yeah. But while individually strong, apex predators are just as vulnerable to extinction as any other species, and in many cases, actually much more so. That's right, because your species may become king whale, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's going. you're going to remain king whale, because what will happen uh, to thy prey, O greater, great eater? Right, yeah. <laughs> will you eat them all, and in doing so, seal your own extinction with theirs? 
or will you eat the ones that you can easily catch and in doing so encourage traits in your prey that will one day outwit you? Or encourage specificity and laziness in yourself. That's right. Yeah. You you become dependent on this one thing. You become great at this one type of predation. Mm -hmm. So you eat only the small. uh, And so the species grows larger with time because larger specimens are more likely to evade your bite. Meanwhile, those who compete with you for your prey adapt with time as well, perhaps growing larger or craftier. Uh, The smaller predators become pack hunters, perhaps using their tactics against you and your own precious young. uh, Again, a strategy employed by varieties of orca to this day. Yeah, and there is a lot of evidence that social behaviors tend to win out over time. Yeah. So I have a I have a fun example I'm going to throw out here. Uh, so I just ask everyone to roll with me on this. But uh, let's consider Jason Voorhees <laughs> as, a, as a sort of apex predator, right? Okay. Is so, he more the megalodon or the leviathan? He's maybe more megalodon. Right? I think more megalodon. He has more of that like shark brain going on, I think. Uh-huh. So for whatever silly reason, he's he's very adept at preying on promiscuous or otherwise morally suspect teenagers. Right. He hears that beer can cracking from far away <laughs> and he's he's on the march. But it's the solid moral characters uh, who prove difficult prey, as well as the, of course, uh, psychically uh, potent uh, teenagers as well. Okay, so you're invoking the rules of horror and slasher movies, which are that the good kids tend to be the only ones who can outwit the killer. Right. But then the added rule for Jason, if there's a kid with psychic powers, that one's going to be difficult prey as well. Well, the kid with psychic powers tends to be the good kid. Yeah, true. So over time, perhaps Voorhees' predatory habits advance the genetic tendency of moral and psychic prey (laughs) until his natural habitat of Crystal Lake is just overflowing with psychic virgin honor students that best him at every turn. (laughs) Okay. Or maybe he's just so good at his job that slashers with less robust franchises like, say, Leatherface, they have to become more social or intelligent in order to earn their kills. So Leatherface has a whole family helping him out. Exactly. It kind of of writes itself, doesn't it? (laughs) Robert, you've taken this into profound territory. (laughs) Now, speaking of uh, species becoming smarter uh, and and, uh, and and having uh, better brains, better uh, uh, social abilities to mm-hmm. compete, we touched on the encephalization quotient earlier. That's uh, the EQ, and this is uh, to be clear the the actual brain size of a of a creature versus what would be expected on mass alone. Yeah. Now, often this is taken as a measure of the intelligence of an animal, and there is there does appear to be some correlation, but it's not a totally direct mm-hmm. correlation. There are outliers with bigger or smaller brains relative to their bodies that don't seem to be totally in line with how intelligent we think they are. Yeah. So the uh, the pack hunting orcas, they boast a 2.5. Okay. Now that's small compared to the human seven or the bottlenose dolphins four, uh, but it rises above the baleen whales one. Yeah. They boast the processing powers necessary to hunt as a social unit. Well, yeah. I mean, the baleen whales... <laughs> They probably don't need much more of a brain than like a grazing herbivore would need. Yeah. Now, it's also possible that environmental factors contributed to the downfall of the Leviathan, a cooling climate during the late Miocene around 10 million to 11 million years ago. Mm -hmm. Giant active predators simply wouldn't be able to function anymore. Meanwhile, smaller predators could have fared better, including sperm whales that uh, depended on deep-sea prey like the giant squid. Now, why would they do better? Well, because you have the, the deep, dark, cold ocean. This is a more of a stable environment. Ah, okay. L- less vulnerable to climate change. So, so there's climate change on the surface that's affecting what prey are available, but you know you can always go down into the dark world to get you some squid. Right. The squid, uh, the squid remain constant down there. So those that can dive down and, uh, and, and eat that meal they have a stability that the whale eaters are just not going to have. Yeah, it's fascinating to contemplate what happens to these powerful creatures like the Megalodon and the Leviathan. Uh, you know, we, we've got these different theories about what happened to them, but ultimately a lot of things could have happened to them because even though the individual apex, apex predator is strong, the apex predator as a species depends on an awful lot going right in order for it to survive. It has to have access to its prey. If the prey thins out, dies off, or migrates somewhere else, the apex predator can starve. Apex predators also tend to have low reproduction rates and large bodies with powerful brains and muscles, which need lots and lots of food to grow and sustain. The apex predator business, you might say in some ways, is a very successful one, but it's also 
a high initial investment organism that requires a lot of incoming cash flow in the sense of a business, right? If you can't keep the flow of resources streaming to it, it quite quickly gets into desperate circumstances. It can't feed itself, can't reproduce and raise healthy young, or in some cases might even turn to cannibalism, which is not good for a species in the long run. The genetic economics of cannibalism do not pay off. Now, some sort of apex predators have managed to survive many ecological crises and or crises and just keep going, right? Like sharks are a good example. The megalodon isn't still around, but sharks in general have been pretty top of the food chain predators for more than 400 million years. But of course, the megalodon is still extinct and the deep diving squid sucking sperm whale still exists, but the leviathan is now extinct. So where do these giant apex predators come from in the first place that might kind of help us explain where they go? Well, one thing is that there's this informal principle in evolutionary biology known as Cope's Rule, named after an American paleontologist named Edward Drinker Cope. Where where are all the drinkers today? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't run across that name very much. <laughs> Cope's rule states that over geological time, a lineage of related animals will tend to increase in body size. And this is an informal rule because it doesn't always hold at every taxonomic level or every type of organism, but it is very often true. It's true on average. Just as one example, in February of 2015, a study published in Science found that if you track the size of marine animals on average over the past 542 million years – They have increased 150-fold in size. Hmm. So why does this appear to happen? Well, I did find an interesting study on that. So uh, there was a study in the American Naturalist in 2012 called Ecological Specialization in Fossil Mammals Explains Cope's Rule. And what this study think, what they think they find is that one possible way of explaining Cope's Rule is that evolution favors animals with bigger bodies. Like if you're bigger, you're stronger and harder to kill, right? But the authors of this study looked at evidence from 554 extinct mammals over the past 60 million years. And they found a couple of interesting trends that got more specific than that. It's not just that bigger bodies are adaptive or that they're always better. These authors found that the increase in body size was correlated with, quote, increasing ecological specialization, meaning you're zeroing in on one more and more unique way of surviving in the ecology around you with maybe a particular prey type or a particular hunting strategy or particular type of habitat that you're finally adapted to. As you get really good at one thing, on average, animals tend to get bigger. So the increase in body size was linked to that, but it was also linked to another interesting thing, periods of global cooling. And this tends to go in accordance with another informal biological principle known as Bergman's rule, which says that the colder a climate you live in, the more your body mass increases. So that's interesting. These bigger bodies tend to correlate with the world getting colder and with animals that tend to get more and more specialized and become less and less of a generalist survivor. But there's a downside that comes with this, right? Increased extinction risk when averaged over time. In other words, heavy lies the crown. Ah. So you want to be the king, the queen, the mob boss, the CEO. If you focus really hard on a very particular strategy for success, you might be able to make it, but you will be wearing a target on your back the whole time. Everybody wants to take you down. And in a metaphorical way, the same is true for a species. If you want to be the master of the sea, the megalodon, the leviathan, the king or the queen of the water, you will get crushed when your main food source disappears. It is hard to be a generalist when you're that big and that powerful and on the top of the pyramid. Wow, you know, I'm tempted to make some comparison here between uh, uh, between the, the diets of apex predators such as this and uh, humanity's dependency on fossil fuels, which of course ties in rather nicely with uh, the history of whaling as well, mm-hmm. the harvesting of these creatures for uh, industrial purposes. You know, when you but when you become dependent upon this one thing, uh, what happens when that uh, that source shrivels up? Yeah, and of course, this isn't going to be this true in the same way about all apex predators or all larger mm-hmm. animals, right? This is something that appears to, based on this study, be true on average. So there are definitely going to be some predators that are more resilient, and I think in most cases, going to be more of a generalist survivalist than others. But the ones where their increase in in size and and food chain 
maintain dominance correlates to this very direct specialization in a certain way of making a living, very often that does make you vulnerable. You lose your individualism as a survivor. Yeah, like one of the uh, ex- exceptions that comes to mind is, of course, uh, the bear. Uh, particularly uh, the larger uh, uh, bear species that are certainly large and ferocious and have no natural enemies be- beyond man. Oh, think of the polar bear. Yeah. Polar bear, very powerful apex predator. Actually, though, it has a, it has a pretty particular ecological niche, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, say, climate change happens, that does not work out well at all for the polar bear. Right. But meanwhile, you also look at something like a, a black bear, yeah. which – will eat just about anything or grizzly grizzly bears who, who, that that go through uh, through sort of varying stages of uh, of dietary consumption but yeah. but it's largely based on what is available. Yeah, exactly, more generalist and thus a little bit more resilient, a little mm-hmm. bit harder to go extinct. Yeah. Of course, then you have the panda bear, yeah. which is uh which is certainly a specialist in its own right and is therefore in a kind of fragile place as well. It's true. If you're bamboo, you know, the panda bear is the most terrifying predator of all. <laughs> you know, I'm always uh, I'm always uh, astounded when I remember that the, the cave bear was probably an herbivore. You know, the, the ferocious uh, bear that is de- depicted battling. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Ba- battling early that. man. Yeah, this would have been uh, this would have been an, an herbivore. This would would not have been out there actively trying to, to eat humans. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. We could. Do a whole another episode on bears, basically. And there's plenty of uh, content to discuss there. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I really enjoyed this look at apex predators because it's so counterintuitive to think of them as so evolutionarily fragile. Yeah. Yet again, not in every case, but so many of them. Yeah, we tend to think, oh, if if you're the top predator, then you are the you're the the king of the hill. You are in a privileged position, and you're not uh, susceptible to these various extinction threat threats, but. You are still vulnerable. Last thing I want to encourage today, look up the picture of the Leviathan's teeth. Yes. <laughs> oh, and sorry, I should say one more thing about its name. They had to, you know, again, earlier today, we mentioned something about the weirdness of taxonomy. Yeah, this was with the, the Basilosaurus. Yeah. That, means, uh, that, that, that means king lizard, even though it is a whale, but we can't change it because that was the first name. The Leviathan whale, they had to change the spelling because there, I think there was already some other organism that had the Leviathan genus as spelled in English leviathan oh yeah so they they changed it i think to the hebrew spelling of leviathan so now it'd be like liviathan yeah it has a y has a y in it right yeah yeah Yeah, it's like if you were going to name your band leviathan and then you realize there was already a leviathan so you just (laughs) you just add some funny characters in there and you're good to go do do a weird spelling on it all right so uh so there you have it if you uh, would like to reach out to us about this episode discuss some uh, ancient apex predators then we encourage you to do so you can find us on social media we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on instagram but uh, we highly recommend you check out stuff to blow your mind.com because that is the mothership that's our web page that's where you'll find all the podcast episodes links out to those social media accounts details on how you can contact us uh directly and e- even send us physical mail if you so desire uh, and then, of course, there's the old-fashioned way to get in touch with us. Right. That would be by email. Now, I want to mention, of course, a big shout-out to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. Thanks so much. And if you would like to email us, that email address is blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.